Well, if you've got your Bibles, would you grab them with me and let's get to work. We'll be in Matthew chapter 28. Kyle very unfairly gave me that text for this week. And I said, this is kind of like asking me to talk about my wife and kids. I can do this for days, right? What do you want me to say about this? And he said, I don't know. Who's preached the text? So here we go. All right. Matthew chapter 28. This is a mission, a message on the Great Commission. Now, we've been talking about missions months. What is the mission of the church? We said the churches can be fancy. I know that we have a fancy one. Kyle's all cute when he designs stuff. It's great. I love that he is. But the mission of the church is what it is, not because Kyle came up with it. The mission is the mission because Christ is the head of the church and he gives the mission. Our job is not to invent it. Our job is to receive it. And so the mission of the church is exalt the Lord by evangelizing unbelievers and edifying and equipping disciples unto maturity and multiplication from here to the ends of the earth. Right? That's what Christ has called us to do. Now, when it comes to this mission, I'm reminded of a story about a group of men that had gathered together and had decided to climb a mountain. And the evening before the climb, they met with their guide, and their guide gave recommendations on all these things that were required for their success. And one thing in particular he said was, you will only reach the summit by getting rid of all the unnecessary items in your packs. You only need to carry the bare essentials. Well, when the team gathered together the next morning to start climbing, all the climbers had followed the guide's recommendations except one young European man. I don't really know why he's European. I made this story up, but he's European, okay? Didn't realize that was strange till I said it. So he started climbing. And he had all of his climbing equipment. He had these blankets. He had large blocks of cheeses. He had some bottles of wine. He had the world's finest chocolates. And he had a bunch of camera equipment. All this stuff he had packed. That's why he's European, European, I guess. Okay. So this young man takes off early. And the team follow him. He goes forth eagerly. And so... The team jumps in right behind him. Well, along the way, the team begins to see items that he's dropped off. They find his blankets. They find his camera equipment. They find some bottles of wine and then his cheese and then some more wine. And then lastly, they find his chocolate. And I'm happy to say that in this made up story, this man made it to the top of the mountain. But when he got there, he had Nothing but those bare essentials. You know, there's a lot of people that are on the way to the top when they realize that they have to get rid of some of these non-essentials but things that they love, they're unwilling to do so. They're happy to, to start off on their task. They're happy and excited about reaching the goal, but they end up finally just setting up their tent in the plane, and they let the idea of ever accomplishing their task go. You see, 
I believe the church is full of a plane full of tents. The people who know that they're tasked with reaching the top, with accomplishing the Great Commission, but have decided they would rather keep their stuff and give up on that goal. The Church of America is so enamored and so involved with our own lives. We're even enamored in good things like Christian fellowship. And we get so active in church activity, so busy, and in church service that we lose touch with our primary responsibility. We lose touch with the needs of lost people. And we, f- we fail to remember the God who gave us this command that makes us, and that makes us unwilling to set aside all these things. The question, the simple question I hope to direct to your hearts today is what's required to make you effective in making disciples of all nations? And I believe this text this morning in Matthew chapter 28 will answer that question. And I hope and pray that we find ourselves obedient to God's command. And when we talk about God's command, I want you to understand that a little two-word sentence, God's command, And it has two parts. And I hope it's needless to say, but the important word there is God. The word command certainly has its place, but God is at the forefront of that. You see, it's our belief in who God is that determines whether or not we will obey this command. It determines how we will go about it. will, Will we go about it in a happy and joyful and willing heart? You see, one thing I believe is that God is worthy to be known and worthy to be proclaimed for who he is. That's a very important part of the missionary motive and of the missionary message. Christ is worthy. And so let's read our text this morning. If you would, stand with me. I'll try to be like Kyle today. When I'm done... Reading this text, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will answer, thanks be to God. Okay, good. I got that right. All right. Matthew chapter 28, be reading in verse 16. Scripture says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we turn our attention to your word this morning. We turn our hearts to your call upon us. Father, we submit. I pray that you help us submit. Because who you are is worthy. What you've done is worthy. Thank you for your love and for Christ and the fact that missions is bound up in your very heart. Help us to understand it this morning. For I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So, as we look at the text, let's first look at its context. 
So Matthew 28, this is the very end, so there's nothing after this. Uh, but if you go back to Matthew 26, just so you understand what has just recently happened, Matthew chapter 26, Judas betrays Jesus in the garden, and Peter denies Jesus in the courtyard. So we're right up at the very end of Jesus's uh, life before the cross. Matthew 27, Jesus is delivered to Pilate, who is the governor, and he questions Jesus. He finds no fault in Jesus whatsoever, but the people still chose Barabbas to be released over instead of the innocent Christ. Pilate, thinking he's doing a good thing there, sends Jesus to be scourged and mocked and crucified. There, Jesus suffers the penalty for sin, even though this is the Jesus that had never committed a single sin in his entire life. But he came as the lamb to be slain in order to take away the sins of the world. At the end of 27, Jesus' body is buried in a borrowed tomb. Guards seal the tomb and surround the tomb. And then Matthew 28 starts by showing that all the guards' efforts in sealing and surrounding the tomb was completely useless. Some ladies go looking for Jesus, but they're met with someone who tells them, He is not here, for he has risen just as he said he would. The ladies, upon hearing this message, they run to try to find the disciples, but Jesus meets them along the way, and he says, Don't be afraid. Just go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, to think about it in its greater context, and what's it look like in the book of Matthew? If you understand Matthew, who he is, and what he was trying to accomplish with his writing of the gospel, Matthew was a Jewish man writing to Jews. And you see, the Jews had this belief that the Messiah was coming, but they didn't know who he would be, what he would be like. They were very confused. And so Matthew wrote his book to Jews to try to convince them that this is the Christ. And here's how he did it. He starts off by writing of Jesus as king. Now, he does this by first tracing his royal line as the son of David. He is like this king, but he's more than just like David the king. Matthew, in the end of his chapter, of his first chapter, tells that Jesus's birth was supernatural. He's not a normal person. The scripture says that Mary was with child from the Holy Spirit in verse 18. And Joseph was then told to take Mary as his wife. Actually, I have in my notes here, he was told to marry Mary, but that's quite contrary, so I won't say that. It's genius. I'm a genius. He's told to take Mary as his wife because she is going to bear a son, and the scripture says in verse 21, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. From the very onset of his book, Matthew is showing how Jesus Christ is the Messiah of God, and he is the king of kings. 
He is the sovereign over all sovereigns. He is absolutely in charge of all things. And he closes the book the same way he started it. He closes the book by being led of the Holy Spirit. He closes the book by this we've just read of Christ, where Christ comes and he declares that all authority on heaven and on earth is his. He closes his book with the Great Commission. Now let's look at the text itself. Verse 16. We see that these 11 disciples go to Galilee. This is um, where Jesus had, had told them to go because it says to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Okay? Now when they see them, they get to the mountain, they see Jesus, and they worshiped him. Mostly. But some doubt it. Now, to be honest with you, we have no clue <laughs> about how many people showed up today at this, this juncture. We, we're not sure if it was just the 11. We know that Matthew was taking great pains to show that all the disciples that were left were still following Jesus. You know, G Judas had betrayed him, and so he is no longer following. He's actually no longer in the picture at this point. But they show up here. These that had come, these 11 or some uh, scholars actually think this may be the time that Jesus appeared to 500, right? Because Paul tells us he, he met with up to 500 people and they saw him. But we know that it's obedience that brought them here because Jesus directed them and they showed up. Now, here's what I do know. I'm not sure exactly how many, but I know that those that were there are there because they showed up. Wow, Dustin, that's brilliant. You're telling me that all those that were present that day were present that day? Yes. That's the ones that showed up, right? The ones that had enough faith in their hearts, enough desire in their souls to see him and follow him, were brought to the mountain. You know, it's been said that the greatest ability there is, is availability. And these brothers these brothers and sisters potentially that showed up were available, and that's important. These brothers, as Jesus called them in verse 10, showed up with a host of the redeemed to meet with Christ. And they were privileged when they showed up. They were privileged with his presence, and they heard of the promise of his continued presence for all the age, and they received his great commission. You know, so many times Christians think that God's going to use them to make disciples when they never even show up. And that's just not true. If you're too enthralled with your own puny plans and agendas that you never even bother to show up with the redeemed, I guarantee you, you're never going to receive the Great Commission and you won't be obedient to it. Now, somebody, I bet, in this room is kind of hoping that I say something about those that doubted. Why does it say that? Why does it say that they doubted? And I'll tell you why. It's because some doubted. The Bible never glosses over human frailties. I love that. I love that. I love that we don't read a book and go, oh man, this guy's incredible. I'll never be able to do that. <laughs> I always read it and I go, oh, they're kind of like me. 
God used them? Oh no, what's that mean about me? It might mean that he can use me too. But here amongst the faithful that day, there were some that doubted. And the reason I want to mention it is not because I think it's great that the Bible doesn't gloss over human frailties. I think it's great because of how Jesus responds. What does Jesus do with their doubt? Well, verse 18 says that Jesus came. Now, if you understand this, if, if you allow me a little bit of sanctified imagination here, okay? Uh, these brothers are walking along. They're going up this mountain and probably look up at Jesus and recognize, hey, we think that's Jesus. Watch, let's just pretend, okay? Well, to be honest, I don't know a lot of your names with my glasses on, but right now I don't have a clue who you are. I do know who you are. The voice help, right? Like I think it's Josh back there, but maybe not, okay? Oh, hey, it's Josh. A little sanctified imagination helps me one to go. There's a part that a part of these disciples that had saw him die. And something, we, we don't understand the resurrected body, but there was something about the resurrected body that allows people that know us before to recognize us then, which is incredible. And they look upon Jesus and he's standing there when they swear that he was dead. Right? And there's a part that he's far off and they're still like, did he have a brother? Is he a twin? This is strange. And Jesus, recognizing they may need glasses like me, comes closer. That's the whole point where it says he came. He comes closer to them, closer and closer, nearer and nearer, and that helps erase any doubt in their minds. If I walk back there to Josh, I can be able to tell you that's guaranteed Josh, right? And if that wasn't sufficient enough, he spoke to them too. And he came to them in order to talk to them. And he said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, this authority is way more important than anything I can describe. The word itself is sometimes translated power. Sometimes it's privilege, sometimes it's even right, as in the right to do something. But I think with no matter how you were to translate it, I think the point of it is simply this. Nothing can prevent him from acting exactly how he wants. Nothing can hinder him. As Job says in 42, no purpose of God's can be thwarted, Right? That's the type of authority that is based on who he is. He himself is truly king. He is perfect deity. And he had all, all that he had set out to accomplish on the cross, he did. And all he set out to accomplish through his resurrection, he did. And they see it. Death has been defeated. Sin had been atoned for. Hail the conquering hero. All authority, all means all, 
all authority, no exceptions, total sovereign right to rule. Jesus here establishes exactly who is in charge. He can do anything, anywhere, anyhow, any way he wants. Now, the disciples then and true disciples now all have one response to this. We all understand that if he truly is the king of all kings, he has all authority, then our only answer to him then is, Lord, anywhere, anyhow, any when, any what, any way you want to use me, I am yours. Your proper response to this text is that. If you are not responding that way, you either don't believe or you're in disobedience. It's the attitude of the Christian who recognizes that Christ really is king and we have to submit to none other but him. You know, we live in a world where many will say that Christ is their savior. Many will say that he is their advocate. He is their mediator between God and man. But few will acknowledge that he is their sovereign and has the right to rule over them. Few consider it a privilege to submit to him and to serve him. So many are caught up in the trivial things of life. We spend our time, our talent, our energy, our money, our resources on stuff that's one day going to just burn up. And we wonder, why is God not using us to make disciples? Well, the first step in obeying the Great Commission, (coughs) excuse me, is checking your heart. Is your heart willingly submissive to our Lord? Are you making yourself available to be used? Are you worshiping him as you should? Are you humble? Do you consider it a privilege to share in his kingdom? Heart checkup is not something I can do for you, but I encourage you to do it. Now, because he has all authority in heaven and on earth, he has every right to say this next part. He has every right to give us this next command, and hopefully we have the heart to submit to it. But he says this in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now here we're going to see the mission as well as the message and methods that are required in order for God's people to obey this command. Now there's really just one command. And when you, when you study this out, the Greek word's very clear. There's one major imperative to these phrases, and that is make disciples. These other words, go, baptizing, and teaching, are actually participles, and they're kind of supporting imperatives, if you will, supporting things that must be done if make disciples is going to be accomplished, right? It gives us the methods we should follow in order to actually accomplish what he has commanded us to do. So the command, make disciples, what's the breadth of that mission? Of all nations. 
Okay? So what's a disciple? Very important. Shockingly, how many people don't understand this? A disciple is one, basically, just a student and a learner. It's a follower. Now, the problem is some people think that there's two classes of Christian. They think there's a basic believer, somebody that's just come to faith, and then there's a disciple, somebody who actually tries to follow Christ and submit to him, study his word, right? And the only problem with that is what? The Bible, right? There's no such thing as two classes of Christians. There's two different types of people in the world. There are disciples of Jesus, and then there's non-believers. But inside this group of believers, there's not multiple segments. Now, certainly there are those that obey better than others, those that are more mature than others, but there's no such thing as just being a Christian and then being a disciple. And that was started, unfortunately, by some ministries in the United States over the last 80 years or so. But I I just want to put a stop to that. Don't think that, well, I'm just a Christian because I've never been discipled, or I've done all that's required to be in the kingdom and I can stop there. Because what you're going to see through this text is that's not the requirement of Christ. Christ does not require faith apart from repentance, apart from a life of following. And we'll see if I can show you that in this text, okay? So, imperative, make disciples. There's a lot of things that are implied in that. In order for us to make a Christian, first of all, we acknowledge we don't have the power to do that. When you go and evangelize your friends to share the gospel with your friends, you are completely hopeless and helpless to save them, just like they're completely hopeless and helpless to save themselves. Our work requires a move of the Spirit. Okay? So we go and proclaim. But making disciples implies with it evangelism. And evangelism, with the understanding of it, just requires a faithful proclamation of the gospel. Evangelism obviously requires this. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This word of Christ is the gospel. This is what must be heard in order for them to believe. This is why Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the power of God to save. Now, let me, you're going to think, Dustin, you're taking us to kindergarten. I realize exactly what I'm doing. But you understand there are things we learn in kindergarten that impacts us the rest of our entire life. Like, praise the Lord, I learned how to tie a shoe, right? You don't understand why, but I once tried to get the Velcro stuff, and my wife told me no. Okay? It's true. You got to admit. Pardon me? I do wear hey dudes. Yeah, praise the Lord for hey dudes. Here's the thing. If Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation 
let's let's go to kindergarten for a second. How many gospels is he talking about? One. How many gospels are the power of God to salvation? One. What's the gospel of Jesus Christ? Okay. Which Jesus are we talking about? Yeah. I'm, I have a I know this guy, his name's Jesus. Spell his name Jesus, okay? He is super handy. He can re-roof your house, but he cannot save your soul. Kindergarten. But how does that play out in what we believe? We believe that there's lots of things that people might say, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, but if it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ found in this scripture, we must reject it because it will not save. And the reason it will not save is because it cannot save. There's no power there. God has put his power in the one single gospel of Jesus Christ, and it has the power of God to save a soul. But it's the only one. You know, I, I went to a gospel presentation this week. At least they claimed it was a gospel presentation. And the gospel presentation included nothing about repentance and faith. And so do you know what that means? That means it was not a gospel presentation. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ demands repentance and faith. A person is saved and the, the sign of that is repentance and faith. Right? I mean, that's on a T, guys. It requires it. Now, what we fail to do so many times is to have a conviction about it. You see, reason, basic reason, basic kindergarten understanding leads us to understand that there's one gospel that saves. And conviction is this. Conviction is when reason and emotion collide. That's what builds conviction. So our reason says only one gospel will save, and our emotion says it is true. It does it. The reason Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel is because he saw it firsthand. He's a recipient of that power of God. He knows what the power of God can do through the gospel. It'll save a soul. Paul's not just like, I heard about this guy. No, it happened to me. That's us as Christians. It happened to me. So that should give us that conviction that we go forward in and the conviction that will make us go, no, that's not the gospel that saves. There's only one. And I don't want anybody deceiving other people and letting them think that they're okay with the God of the universe when they're really not. That's a great offense to him. And I have no, no desire to give people some sort of false, false hope when there's real hope right there. This must be a conviction 
You see, when we take what we believe about the gospel, it should produce an intentional and ample proclamation of that gospel of grace throughout the world. And that should be just this manifestation of the obedience of God's people. This should reveal our faith in him. It should reveal our faith in that gospel. A people that are okay with the the proclamation of false gospels and the deception of our young people does not reveal faith in the true gospel. It's just, it's just the same as thinking my buddy Jesus can save your soul because he's got just as much power to save your soul as any false gospel does. None. I wouldn't actually talk to kindergartners like that, okay? But I believe that. And if I get to heaven and the Lord said, Dustin, the only problem was you believed it too much, I'll apologize to you there. But I don't think I'll have to. The scripture is clear. To make the type of disciples that Christ is going after, we must proclaim the right biblical gospel. We must go, we must baptize, and we must teach. Go baptizing and teaching. Certainly part of the command, but these are methods to making disciples. Baptize. Let's look at it. There's an assumption in this word baptize that you can just see it's loaded with gospel preaching. Like Just think about what baptism is. It is visibly carrying out a symbol which illustrates the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's simply a public sign, a public confession that a person has identified himself in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a public sign of a new life in Christ. And therefore, it's a public sign of a new disciple of Christ. Baptism is a way for a person who put their faith in Christ Jesus to demonstrate their faith and their union with Christ in a very public way. And the scripture's clear. Every believer is to be baptized. And every believer, as we are going about our work and lives trying to make disciples, should also disciples should also be calling those new disciples to be baptized. How many times do you see that? We see lots of people going, maybe even lots of people sharing the gospel, but it's very rare to see people calling people to be baptized. It seems to be a missing ingredient in our evangelism today. Calling people to salvation is evangelism, is making disciples, is obeying the Great Commission. But you can't just call them to salvation and then disobey when it, call, when it comes to the calling them to be baptized part. We must obey that aspect as well. Now, here it implies something else. The application of baptism implies there's a local church. Must be a local church because baptism is an ordinance of the local church. Planting local churches, therefore, is a requirement in order to fully obey the Great Commission. 
And besides that, planning local churches is the most effective way to ensure that the gospel takes root in new lands for generations. Because that's the goal, right? Is for where the gospel reaches, for it to stay, to set up a fort, and that even though all of hell will come and attack, it's going to stay. It'll last. Because we believe the gates of hell shall not prevail. Especially when we've obeyed this command. Now, if we make up our own command to obey, people go, oh, we just don't understand why this isn't working. Well, maybe try it the way the Lord said. A.W. Tozer says, when we get to heaven, it's not going to be that that the Lord's going to tell us, well, you tried my ways and they were just found wanting. They, they didn't work. It's we'll have to look at the Lord and say, Lord, we just never tried your ways. There's so many times that people go and they, they say they're accomplishing the Great Commission, but their going is evangelism only. And if there's no baptizing and if there's no teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded, they have not obeyed the Great Commission. They've obeyed a part of it. And obeying a part of it is really just disobedience. The church is the mission force, but it's also the mission fruit. You see, the way these people go to make disciples is they're sent from local churches and they go to plant new local churches. And so how does the Great Commission go out from a local church? The local church being obedient to what God's called them to do. To go do what? To make another local church. It's both the force behind it and it's the fruit of it. It's the means that the mission is accomplished, but it's also the goal of the mission. Make sense? Third term here is taught, teaching. Making disciples involves going, preaching the gospel, calling for saving faith, calling them to be baptized in the local church, and then having that local church develop leaders so that they can instruct these disciples in lifelong obedience, teaching them to observe all things that Christ has commanded us. You see, in the Great Commission, we are not calling people to make a decision for Jesus and that's it. It's not what we're calling them to do. We are calling them to an overt public identification with Jesus and a lifelong obedience to his commands. That's what the Great Commission says that we're supposed to call them to. So just understanding this baptism thing, right? Baptism proves that on this side there was a call to faith, right? Jesus Christ came, died, buried, and was resurrected for your sins you believe in that, then you come to faith. Now you're also you called to faith. I have this in uh, uh, alliterated. Let me find my notes. It's a call to faith. And then it's also in baptism, it's called to a family of faith. And then this family of faith is a call to a field of study. The we are to observe all that he has commanded. All things. And so the Great Commission demands 
the Great Commission, this text here commands that we aim for mature disciples. And the issue with that is, unfortunately, unfortunately, the Great Commission to so many churches and individuals has become so general and so elastic that they feel like they can do as do whatever they regard as helpful in the world or worthwhile in the world, and they get to call it missions. The problem with that is this Great Commission is not elastic. It doesn't come with a blurred focus. It puts glasses on us to help us see exactly what Christ has called us to do. He's called us to make disciples. Hospitals, orphanages, schools, food distribution centers, all of these things are not the mission we've been given. They are the natural outworking of the Great Commission, but they aren't the Great Commission. Here's what I mean. Faith is invisible, right? I can't see your faith. And faith actually is just belief in the invisible, right? We don't have this luxury of seeing Jesus. We just get to hear the witnesses of the witnesses, of the witnesses, of the witnesses of those that saw Jesus, right? And we believe them. We believe in this book. We believe that these promises that God has made, he will fulfill. He's going to continue until the end of the age, right? So faith is invisible, and faith is simply a belief in something that's invisible, but faith is made visible through godliness, we should be able to tell that you have it. We should be able to see the tangible reality of transformed lives. Why? Because the gospel has the power to not just save a soul, but to transform an entire life. Because he that is in Christ is a new creation. Behold, all things passed away. All things have become new. Why? Because that's the power of the gospel. It comes in a big, big way. So recognizing this, that the gospel causes a tangible, transformed life, then, therefore, knowing who God is, knowing what God has done, leads us, if we accept it, if we have faith, it leads us to right attitudes towards him, and it leads us to doing what he wants. This is what Puritans will call piety. We should, be, we should live lives of piety. That's godliness. Calvin actually says the whole life of a Christian ought to be a sort of the practice of godliness. And so it, in our work, in what we do, our hope is that churches and individuals will be reformed, not just in their doctrine, but in their practice and their piety, that we will continue to reform their life and belief to the standard of teaching of the Scriptures that we will continue to obey what Christ has commanded to uh, commanded us. And we don't have that 100% yet. And so we're always trying to reform ourselves to be more like the Scriptures call us to be. In doctrine, in our practice, in our godliness. Sometimes people will try to take the natural outworking of a transformed lie of creating hospitals and schools and things like that. And they think that just that natural outworking will transform other people's lives in the same way. 
And I'm sorry to tell you, it just doesn't work like that. Do you know that there's no such thing as secondhand faith? God has children, but he has no grandchildren. You don't get to have faith because you know somebody that had faith or that your parents had faith or your grandparents had faith. That doesn't count. You don't have faith until you actually have faith. And so don't assume that some natural outworking of your transformed life is going to transform somebody else's life. What do they need in order to come to faith? They need somebody to tell them the gospel. The gospel must be faithfully proclaimed. And so our mission, again, requires a move of the Spirit, which is why this text is so comforting. He is with us always. Huge comfort. Acts 1.8. Hugely comforting. You shall be my witnesses. Oh, no. When? How? I can't do that. He says, when the Spirit comes upon you. We are equipped for the task that we're commanded to accomplish. And we're equipped not just to have this transformed life that serves others, but to have a transformed life that tells others, which is really the greatest service you can give. Each person comes to God the same way through repentance and faith in response to the proclaimed word. Our mission, I hope you see this, the mission of the Great Commission requires, by its very nature, the faithful proclamation of the gospel. Now, I brought a slideshow, and I have a couple of minutes. Let's go fast, okay? Part of my goal today is not just to give us a, a good understanding, Lord willing, the, of this text, but also to answer a question because the scriptures call us to make disciples of all nations and so my natural question is so how are we doing are we getting close i i grew up in a church that told us all the time that we were super super close that we are right at the very end that this last person, you might be the one that comes down and believes today and Jesus is coming right back. And that could be true, okay? Could certainly be true. But I didn't grow up with a proper understanding of the state of the world and of a proper understanding of the Great Commission. Matter of fact, I'll go ahead and say this. The very first mission sermon I ever heard, I preached, which is not a good thing. Okay? So... I want to take a quick look at the progress of the Great Commission in the world. I should have brought a clicker. I told Josh I've got a clicker, uh, but it's not here. So this idea, make disciples of all nations, the words of all nations in the Greek is pantata ethne. This word ethne is not necessarily, or not even close, I guess, to what you and I would sometimes call nations, right? We have United Nations, and so there's about 200. It's, it changes all the time depending on who's mad at who, right? But there's about 200 countries in the world, right? And it's not just these borders that are on some map that we've just got to get the gospel in every one of those borders. If that's the case, we've completed it a long time ago. This word 
ethne is where we get the, the idea of ethnicity or ethnic people, okay? So it's what we would call a people group. Now, if I could explain it to you easily, Lord willing, I'll do it this way. The people that are hearing my voice are in this room. There may be people, I guess, in the cry room or something like that, but most of them are in this room, okay? Because they're within the sound of my voice. The guys in First Baptist have no clue what I'm saying today, right? Why? Because they can't hear the sound of my voice. Now, there's lots of barriers to that. One is these walls, okay? They, we have these walls around us that prevent the sound from going out to lots of other places. They also have walls around them that gets outside noise from coming in, right? There's probably semis and stuff driving around that we don't know about because we're inside these walls and I keep screaming at you, right? What you have to understand is a people group is as big of a group as the gospel can be proclaimed to, and there's no walls or barriers that will prevent them from hearing it and understanding it. So a people group is somebody that would have, for our purposes, the same language. Because you might be in this room, but you speak Swahili and no English, right? And I only speak almost English. And so it's you're not going to understand it. That's a barrier. You're not going to be able to hear the message and receive the message. That makes sense? There's also cultural issues. But if you think about how many people groups there are in the world, how many people have walls around them that other people shouting in other groups can't hear the message rightly because it just won't fit in through their barriers. Does that make sense? That's a people group, okay? So the Great Commission task ex, um, calls us to do a couple of things. Just the, the, the understanding gives us that we need a church for every people. Why? Churches are required to obey the Great Commission, and we need a Bible in every language. How are you going to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded them if they don't have proof of what Christ has commanded them? We need a Bible in every language, okay? So... The number of people groups in the world, and I'll be real honest with you, this changes. We study, by we I mean missiologists, okay, not me. Missiologists will study as we have people around the world, we begin to look at these people and trying to figure out how, how far can we go before the gospel isn't communicated rightly anymore? How, how far do we go before we hit a wall, right? And we're trying to figure out how many walls there are in the world. And currently, our very best guest, I updated this last night, our very best guess is there's about 17,291 people groups in the world. Meaning this, for every one of those 17,291, we need at least one person to be able to get inside those walls, proclaim the gospel faithfully, and produce a Bible that is faithful to the scriptures. And if we can't, we can't say that we've accomplished the Great Commission. Because Jesus said, get all the nations you can and then don't worry about it. Did anybody here have a clue there was that many walls in the world? So, go ahead, brother. Now, when we talk about people groups and understanding of how far we've gone, is we need to understand what, what do we call an unreached people group. And an unreached group means that there are no indigenous community of believing Christians that are able to engage the group with the gospel. 
So if there's walls around a people and nobody there has been able to plant a church, claim the gospel, produce the Bible, we call those people unreached. Okay, now watch, huge difference between being unreached and unsaved. This is why if you, I coach a lot of would-be missionaries, right? And they'll say, well, you know, my parents will say, well, there's lost people across the street. Right. There's a huge difference between being unreached and unsaved. Because those people across the street should have, I don't know, 150 people or so that are willing to go and tell them. Is these other people don't have anybody inside their language and culture that can tell them. Okay. So the way they do this, they used to actually do this. They considered an unreached people group less than 25% Christians. They've dropped it down to 2%. Okay. Just because I just want you to understand, I'm going to tell you the number of unreached people, people groups, and here's what's required. They say less than 2% of their having heard the gospel won't be able to go and tell others. That's not my number. I just want you to be aware. The number of unreached people groups in the world is 7,253. That's how many walls are up that's not allowing the gospel to go in. Now, on top of that unreached people group, there's something we call unreached and unengaged people groups. And an unreached and unengaged means that they are not reached, but nobody's even trying to get in the wall to be able to share the gospel. Does that make sense? So nobody's in there that knows it, that's trying to even get started. Unreached people groups, there's a a large portion of them that missionaries are going into to try to enter. DTN is launching on December 23rd. We just bought our tickets this last week. December 23rd, we're launching a family to go to an unreached people group. It's got over 250,000 people in this people group, and they do not have one single Christian among all of them, and they have not one word of the Bible translated into their entire language. And we're going to go and spend 25, 30 years, by God's grace, trying to produce an entire scripture in their language so that there can be a church that's faithful, that can make disciples and teach them to observe all things, and there'll be churches that will baptize them in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, UUPG has no strategic gospel proclamation underway. Okay? So how many UUPGs are there? 4,851. That's our best guess of how many people are in a barrier that nobody's even trying to get in at this point. So I ask you, do you think we're done? The The reason I got so upset at my pastors growing up that continued to say, there's just one more, there's just one more, we're almost done, the reason that made me so mad is that caused everybody around me to go, oh, that just means we can sit. You're preaching, you'll probably get the last one. And when I realized these numbers, I realized this is not numbers that means most of us can be sitting on the premises. These are numbers that say, we've got to get up and we've got to go. We've got to make disciples. We've got to baptize. We've got to teach. We can't just stay here in our little room that everybody here has heard the gospel many times. 
We've got to find a way to get out of this and go get in other rooms where they don't have gospel presenters. There's nobody there presenting and proclaiming the truth. And Christ deserves to be proclaimed in all 4,851 of them. He is worthy of all of them. Go to the next one, please. Unreached, unengaged people groups make up one quarter of the world's population. A little over 2 billion people don't even have anybody working to get in there so that they can share the gospel. Half of the population of all UUPGs live in just 38 people groups, each having over 10 million people in each one of us. There's lots of large, large people groups. We've got small people groups. DTN has four churches in the Demogat tribe, and there's 900 or so people in their entire people group. We've got four churches there. Praise God. But there's also people that have over 10 million and their, their people group with zero churches. Just some missions education here. When you talk about UUPGs, you kind of wonder, where are they in the world? Unreached people groups are unreached because, one, they're hard to get to. They may have a culture and a language that is very difficult to learn. They may have a culture that is very opposed to Christianity, opposed to the even thought of Christianity, you've seen some of the stuff that's come up about Hamas here recently, where they are raised, their their whole founding document is to kill all the Jewish people. You see it says that. These children that are being raised in it are being taught that those are wicked, bad people. There are people in this world that have taught their entire nations of people that Christianity is something we should oppose. Why do you think they would do that? Because the enemy is doing everything he possibly can to blind the minds of unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, in who is the image of God. He's doing everything he can to prevent them from seeing it. But just because our mission is opposed doesn't mean we should stop. It means we should step on the gas. So there's a window called a 1040 window, and I don't know if that's, Go, go back a little bit. Um, okay, I don't know if you guys can see the black rectangle, but where you s- North Africa and Asia, the bottom part of Asia, it's between the number 10 and number 40 latitude lines. Uh, that's what we call the 1040 window. The vast majority of unreached and unengaged people groups in the world live within that window. Okay? 1040 went, uh, population is 5.22 billion people. Uh, about 8,000 people groups are there, praise God. Several of them are reached. Several of them are being worked in uh, by God's great grace. Um, but 60% of UPGs, unreached people groups, live in places that are close to American missionaries. Now, what that means is not necessarily that it's closed to getting in. It just means it may be closed to getting out. But I hope New Life Community Church has realized that Christ is worthy of your very life. He's worthy of your kid's life. He's worthy to be worshipped among all people. Uh, the Great Commission task, yeah, I can't read that small. I'm sorry. Uh, 
this is just to give you an idea of where they're at. There's in India, there's 2,135 unreached peoples. Just so you know, that's the biggest country in the world, or the country that has the most unreached people groups in it. And that kind of walks you through. You can see when we go, went to that map, there's lots of red in Asia. The gospel needs to go to Asia, but praise God, the gospel has come in incredible ways in Asia. God is doing a mighty work. I don't want this to be a doom and gloom thing. I want you to understand God is doing incredible, incredible things. Okay. In 1900, there was 300 churches in the Philippines. In 2010, the Philippine churches made this goal of sending out 100,000 missionaries to the 1040 window from their very churches. Why? What happened? The gospel came to the Philippines. He's, God is transforming lives all over the world, but he's doing it all through people who are willing to obey the Great Commission. Oh, does that not work? I did this really cool thing. There's supposed to be five faces popping up in a second. It doesn't work. Josh, can you fix it? All right. It it worked when I gave it to Josh, so it's all I want to say. It's hard for us to grasp 5.5 billion, but if you were to look at 5.5 billion people, five faces every second, it would take 35 years to see every. There's a lot of people. My point is, I'm not just looking for one of you to go. I'm not just looking for one of you to be a part of the Great Commission. For us to accomplish the Great Commission is going to take everybody in Christ's family. All of us have a role to play. Go ahead, Josh. Now, just a, here's an example of, uh, yeah, I'm running out of time. Just an example of a uh, people group, uh, estimated number of workers required to reach this unengaged, unreached people group would be about 2,700 people to fight, to just to be able to meet the needs they have. 0.00% Christian. All right, go to the next one. Here's a small one too. This people group in Brazil, same thing, zero Christians in their entire people group, but the amount of workers needed to reach them, maybe just one. You spend your life well. I'd love to tell you sometime about David and Adriana Petro, the DTN workers, and they're the ones that went and spent 25 years in the jungles of the Philippines. They're the only outsiders that speak Dumaget, the only ones. But after 25 years of laboring in the jungle, there's four churches led by native pastors who are continuing to, to share the gospel and proclaim the gospel among the 900 people that speak their language. If you were to ask David, was it worth it? David said, I've never made a sacrifice because Christ is so worth it. Raising my kids with the snakes and the spiders was an awesome, awesome privilege. Go to the next one. The Bible in every language. There are, we think, uh, about 7,359 total languages in the world. Of those, only 704 have a completed Bible in their language. Do you understand how privileged you are? When the Reformation hit, 
Okay. When Martin Luther in 1517 nailed his 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg Chapel, which happened on October 31st, 1517, two days, somebody text me and say, Happy Reformation Day. Okay, please. But when Martin Luther nailed that nail in the door of that church, there were Bibles in less than 10 languages. Do you know that? The Reformation started this understanding that people should be reading the Bible. This is the word of God to the people. And so where the church at the time, the Catholic church had said, no common person needs to have a Bible. This is only for the priest. Only the priests get a chance to read this. And it's our job to interpret and tell the people what it is they're supposed to believe. Right. The Reformation said, no, absolutely not. This is for the people. And so John Calvin and Geneva bought 38 printing presses, and they used those printing presses to print the Bible in the native languages and to print ap apologetic uh, pamphlets. How incredible is that? Now, because of this right understanding of the Great Commission, the right understanding of the gospel, the right understanding of God, and it's hard for the nations, now, today, there's the are portions of the Bible in just over 3,400 languages, which means we still have quite a few to go. There's work to be done. 1.51 billion people speaking 6,000 6, languages do not have a complete Bible in their language. And 145 million are still waiting for a translation work to begin just to the for the very first word to be translated. Go ahead. So what's the world in 10 people? If you were to take the 8 billion people of the world, we just went over that. Uh, United Nations thought we did went over 8 billion last year. The U.S. Census Bureau thinks that we all hit 8 billion in October of 2023, just so you know. So it might happen right now, okay? Who knows? I don't think any of them knows. The Lord knows. 8 billion people in the world. If you were to take them and drop them into 10 people, then that means a true believer is about one person. Nominal adherence, meaning cultural Christianity, meaning not true Christians. This may be talking about us. You know that our culture, our, our county right here is surrounded by what people would call nominal Christians and God calls non-Christians. But there are people who have been reached with the gospel but have not accepted the gospel. They've not, they do not have faith. Those that have heard and have zero response are about four people, and those that have zero gospel exposure are three people. Do you know that 86% of all Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists will be born, live their entire life, and die without ever even meeting a Christ follower? You don't understand the privilege you have to be able to show up and have any of the five pastors that you have to faithfully present the gospel to you every week. You don't understand the privilege that that is, but you need to understand it. You need to understand that there's work to be done, and sitting on the premises is not allowed. The state of the world, to be quite honest, should not matter. I show it to you just to help you understand where we're at. The state of the world doesn't matter because Jesus Christ, his call to us as his people, he as our king, this is all that is required for us to obey him. When Christ has called us, we need to just 
line up and obey. Now, in the Great Commission, there should be both a personal call and a corporate call. This goes forth to every individual in the church, and it goes forth to the church corporately. We're called to this mission. But therefore, since we're all called to the mission, there should both be a personal and a corporate response. The fulfillment of this mission is obviously the privilege and responsibility of the church. But you understand, an individual cannot say, my church does something, so I don't need to. There must be a personal response to this great commission. Every follower of Christ has the responsibility and joy of participating in the great commission. Each of us is a piece of the puzzle. And I want you to understand, we've not, not fulfilled the great commission because we've not fulfilled the great commission because most of us aren't involved in it at all. Do you know that in 2001, there were 900 churches for every unreached people group? Meaning that we ought to be able to partner with 899 other churches and be able to go tackle one of these unreached people groups. That's how little work we must do. We need to do one nine hundredth of the work. If we would just all get on board, we could accomplish it. The church has 9,000 times the amount of manpower needed to finish the Great Commission. Evangelicals could provide all the funds needed to plant a church in every unreached people group with only 0.3% of their income. Let me phrase that a different way. We have roughly 3,000 times the amount of financial resources needed to finish the Great Commission. The problem is not we don't have the manpower. It's not we don't have the resources. The problem is we find ways to, to thrill ourselves with frivolous things. We see the mountain and we love our chocolates and camera equipment more than we love the goal. And so we pitch our tent in the plane more satisfied with our stuff than in declaring the beauty and glory of Christ to the nations. I would love to say that we've got the financial resources that just stays in your pockets, but that's not true. Most of the time it goes to frivolous things. We think and know that Christ came and purchased our redemption at great cost to himself but yet the Church of America is convinced that we can accomplish our mission with little cost to us. The mission that God has given us begins with Him. We understand it because of His purposes among all people, among all nations, to the ends of the earth, because His glory is going to come and cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The content of our mission is the proclamation of the gospel, and its objective is God's glory that is evidenced in his dominion over all things. So I hope you see that the call of the Great Commission and the greatest goal of the Great Commission is the honor of God. My question is, what will you do? 
for the honor of God. I believe that the honor of God seeing the beauty of Christ is the only goal that is sufficient enough to help us place all of our material possessions and personal lives in the right perspective. It's the only thing that's going to give us the ability to do what that European young man did and start dropping frivolous things so that we can accomplish our goal. I want to ask for our team to come and play. And I'm going to pray in just a second. But I want to ask you to spend a few moments just reflecting on your life, on your heart, on the percent of willingness your heart is. I call you to reflect upon the beauty and glory of Christ. To reflect on his worthiness to reflect deeply on how you can be a part of God's mission. See, my ultimate goal is this. It, a theologian said years ago, so you've got three options when it comes to the Great Commission. It says, one, you can go. Two, you can send. Or three, you can be disobedient. And my sole prayer today is that you'll take disobedience off the table of options. You'll ask the Lord, God, how can we go? How can we send? How can we glorify your great name among all of the nations? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your magnificent glory. You, the Holy One of Israel, you, the righteous and holy God of the universe, have at your heart, a love for us that makes no sense to me. What is man that you should think of us? But God, because of your great love and mercy, your word teaches us that you sent your son to die, to pay a penalty that he didn't deserve to pay. but he did it so that you could be just and the justifier of sinners, that you could be merciful to a world that is full of nations, that are full of people who have rejected you and rebelled against you. But Lord, in your great grace and mercy, you've given us a message of hope, of power that can bring people back to peace with you. Father, I pray that you will unleash this church for the good of all nations and for the glory of your great name. Be magnified in us, O Lord, I pray. Amen.